Well, what an honor to be with you. I, I'm always amazed when I go somewhere and I'm there for the first time and I'm up and standing in front of a bunch of people who don't have any idea who I am and have no reason to listen to me. Uh, and so I'm just like, what an incredible act of grace that you, you and welcome people even from south of the Red River to come <laughs> and talk with you. But, but just so you'll know, we spent most of the 90s in Oklahoma. My wife went to the University of Oklahoma. She's got a degree hanging on her wall. Uh, we, we root for Crimson and Cream every Saturday in the fall, uh, and so we're Sooner fans. We just happen to live south of uh, the Red River uh, because we're missionaries, and they need the gospel in Texas. <laughs> it is always good to be back in Oklahoma. We spent seven of the best years of our life in this state, and I have been so impressed as I've gotten to know Kent, kind of have a mutual appreciation thing going here, but... We've been in a, a gathering of leaders talking about the present state and the future of Churches of Christ, and he's been one of the most thoughtful uh, and wise leaders. And hearing his story growing up in this church and the way that you took him in uh, with the crisis with his parents and really shepherded him and mentored him, and then he uh, continuing to serve here, it's a unique story, and it's really a beautiful story, and I commend you for that. I just love to see kingdom stories lived out that way, and to see a church like this one that's been around for a long time, and you are transitioning with your neighborhood. You don't step over your neighborhood to worship. You welcome your neighborhood in, and you're serving the people around you, and the diversity of people in this room is really encouraging to me. That's a sign that the kingdom is come when you see people who wouldn't normally probably interact socially loving each other in the name of Jesus and coming together and to hearing prayers in different languages and and to see just the way that God is healing the world by bringing people together through Jesus. I'm, I'm so impressed by that. So thank you for letting me be here. Well, one of the benefits of my job is I do get to travel uh, and, and be lots of cool places around the world. And, you know, it sounds impressive to say, well, I preached on six continents and I've been to dozens of countries. Believe me, that sounds a lot more romantic than it is. Uh, international travel is a beatdown. I love being places. I hate getting places. I do the ministry for free. They pay me to travel. Uh, because it is not a lot of fun to spend a lot of time on airplanes and fight the crowds and all that kind of stuff. And, and whenever, I, uh, whenever I'm outside the United States, there are things I love about every country. There are things that you find about every country that are charming and, and really beautiful. And you see God's creative diversity put on display in lots of other countries. But anytime I travel outside the United States, I'm reminded how much I love my country. Because I miss so many things about being in the United States. And often they're not big things. They're things you probably don't think about unless you're outside the country. I really miss having ice in my glass. I miss drinking out of large cups. Most of the world drinks out of communion cups. I like living in a country where 32 ounces is a small. I miss free refills in big cups with ice in them. I miss American food. I love food from all over the world, but we really do have some of the world's best food, and you can't get good Tex-Mex in other countries. I have tried. I've eaten Mexican food in Laos, and I do not recommend it. If you leave the country, just do not go for the Mexican food. I'm telling you, unless you're in Mexico, don't go there. It's not a good thing. 
Whenever I leave our country, I miss being able to drive my car by myself on a well-paved road. Not having to take all kinds of public transportation and all the kinds of things that the rest of the world makes sense to them. We like to be by ourselves, alone on a freeway where we can all be congested and caught in traffic and delayed so we can be alone and listen to our music at a large volume. I love my country. But you know what I never miss when I'm outside the United States? Never for a moment, never even a hint. I don't miss American news. I never miss American news. American news is depressing, it's confusing, it's overwhelming, it's a bunch of chicken littles using fear to sell advertising. The news industry is a for-profit industry that is trying to make you afraid and get you addicted to fear so that they can sell products to you and they are keeping our country in fear and anxiety all of the time and too many Christians are paying no attention to the good news because they're so focused on cable news. And ever since 9-11, I understand, seems like our world's gone crazy. Now, I, I was talking to a group of college students uh, last year uh, in Lubbock, Texas, and it dawned on me, nobody there remembered 9-11. It's been so long ago. They were either not born yet or were only babies at the time. But for those of us who are old enough to remember before 9-11, uh, the world was a different place back in those days. I mean, it, it, after communism fell, 1989, 1990, we had a, about a decade there where it looked like America was the world's only superpower and we didn't have any enemies anymore and we were just going to lead the world in some kind of triumphal procession and just like it, it looked like the world was safe again, we got a very harsh reality check with radical Islamic terrorism in 9-11. And then it was wars in Afghanistan, which are still going on. Wars in Iraq, the Arab Spring in 2011, where there were revolutions all around North Africa and the Middle East, the Syrian war, millions of refugees flooding out of all of the Middle Eastern countries in North Africa into Europe by the millions, terrorist attacks happening almost every week that it seems. Somebody is getting shot up, somebody's getting blown up, some country is coming apart. And then the Russians reemerged as a threat, and they took over the Crimea in Ukraine, and they began to meddle between Turkey and Syria. They began tampering with our election. And then the North Koreans all of a sudden start talking about nuclear weapons and, and sending off missiles, and China begins to use eco I mean, uh, the, the technology kind of terrorism with the Internet and and we have all kinds of threats coming out of China and then Iran. It seems like we're always on the verge of some war there. And it just seems like it's a catastrophe all the time. It's constant political upheaval. And, and the presidential election has been rather contestuous the last couple of years, has it not? With impeachments and just the polarization of our public. And it looks like the U.S. moral system is falling into decline and the church is in decline and the family's being questioned and everything's being challenged and lots of Christians are just scared. Everywhere I go, Christians are just scared. They're panicky. Everywhere we go across the U.S., fear, 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 hunker down mentality. And, and I get it. I do. I get it. But people are wanting to ask God, what in the world are you doing? 
Well, I want to tell you today what in the world God's doing. But before we do, I want you to tap into that fear for a moment. If you don't feel it, you have it surrounding you all of the time. Because that fear, that sense of dread, that sense that our nation is right on the verge of collapse. We've got to do something to save our nation. That sense that our culture may be imploding, if not being overrun from outside. That's exactly how the people of Israel felt during the days of Jesus and the days of Paul and the apostles. Jesus came into an Israel that was afraid they were about to be obliterated. They were ruled by a foreign power, the Romans. They were controlled in every way. They were overtaxed. They had no freedom. And they were constantly under threat of just being squashed and obliterated by the Romans. And Jesus was killed more for political than religious reasons because it looked like he was raising up a revolution and there were constant voices for revolution to overthrow the Romans. And that's why in John 11, we have that reading from verses 48 through 50 where the leaders are meeting, trying to talk about what are we going to do with Jesus, all these crowds, he's talking about kingdom of God, all of these sorts of things. And, and we have this conversation, verses 48 through 50. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You hear that? Fear of the nation. Fear of losing our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it's better for you that one man die than the whole nation perish? They thought that their nation, their survival as a nation, was being threatened by Jesus because of his radical, political, religious views. We're going to cause the Romans to come in and just destroy them all. That's the kind of world that the gospel was born in. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about the way your brain works. If you talk to a neurologist, somebody that studies the brain, works with the brain, practices medicine on the brain, the way the human brain works is when your fear and anxiety reach a certain level within your brain, the frontal cortex, the part of your brain that you think rationally with, the part of your brain that you think creatively with, the part of your brain that you have faith with, shuts down. Fear shuts down the higher mental processes. When you are afraid, you cannot act on faith. When you are afraid, you don't think, you react. You either run, you know, you fight, flight, or freeze. That's the only thing you can do when you are really afraid. Fight, flight, or freeze. But you do not think, you do not believe, you do not act on faith. And that's a real problem for people who are supposed to be living out of love and faith instead of fear. And the gospel was born in a world where people were preoccupied with fear and anxiety. They saw a nation that was on the verge of collapse. That's why when Saul of Tarsus began to see this movement of Jesus followers spring up after claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he said, we've got to do anything we can to stop this. And he went to the officials of the Jews and he got letters to go all the way to other cities and other countries and arrest followers of Jesus and bring them back. That's why they were capturing, imprisoning, punishing, even killing followers of Jesus because national survival is at stake. And all of our morals go out the window when we got to save our people. It looked like the world was coming apart. But you know what was really happening? 
The world wasn't coming apart. The world was coming back together. Because God was working at that time to save the world, not just Israel, to save the world. And God does his best work when it looks like things are most out of control. God wasn't just trying to save Israel. He was trying to restore an entire world. Because the gospel was not about how to make Israel great again. It was about uniting and healing all nations. And the temple was not just for the Jews. It was a house of prayer for all nations. And Israel thought God only cared about them and saving their country when he wanted to use their country to reach all countries. And we are in an almost identical time today when we've got a lot of American Christians worrying about how to save our country and not recognizing what God is doing globally. Despite how things may look in America to, fear, to fearful Christians, globally Christianity is in a golden era. The kingdom of God is on the rise. Christianity is the world's fastest growing religion. Now the Muslims are having more babies, but we're converting more people. Let me just give you a few illustrations. A hundred years ago, on the continent of Africa, there were less than 10% of the population who were Christian by any definition. Mostly pagans, worshiping pagan gods, and, and quite a few Muslims, particularly in North Africa. Today, there are oh, about 50% of the population of Africa follows Jesus as Lord. Within a few years, there will be over a billion Christians in Africa. It will be, it probably already is, the world's most Christian continent in less than 100 years. In China, 1948, Mao Zedong, Communist Revolution, they take over the country. They will not tolerate any rival to the state and the power of the state and the Communist Party. And so anybody who swears allegiance to God or Jesus is dangerous. So they imprison all of the preachers, the pastors, all of the church officials. They confiscate all church property. They close all the seminaries. They eradicate the institutional presence of the church. They drive the church underground. And at that time, estimates range from a million to three million Christians in China, most of them in very Western-like looking churches supported by foreign money. Three million tops Christians in China. What happened, though, the church went underground. They rediscovered their sense of mission <clears throat> And the church exploded so that in the 1990s, when China opened up, we found out that there were 80 to 90 million Christians in China. Today, those numbers range from 90 to 160 million. It's kind of hard to count underground Christians. But it's estimated that over 10% of the population of China are now followers of Jesus in spite of severe persecution. There are more people meeting and worshiping Jesus in China this weekend than are in the United States. They are now sending missionaries out all over the world. Brazil, South Korea, we used to think of as missions countries where we would send missionaries. And there are still places there we need to do that. But now Brazil and South Korea are some of the world's largest missions sending countries themselves. You can hardly go anywhere in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, where you don't run into Korean missionaries and Korean mission efforts. It only takes 200 Korean Christians to send a missionary. It takes 2,000 American Christians to send a missionary. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't even begin to count the impact that we've had on education, economics, medical, 
justice initiatives in the name of Jesus. Worldwide, Christianity is not in decline. It is going through a massive transformation, however. And the center of vitality in the church is no longer in Europe and North America. For a long time, Christianity was a white man's religion. That is not the case anymore. 70% of people who follow Jesus today are not in the old Christendom, white, European, and uh, North American nations. We are in a very different time. And the church in America is being pruned back. There's no question. The farmer has come into the vineyard, and he has taken his pruning knife, and he is cutting off the dead wood. And the church is feeling that, but there's a difference between being cut back and being cut off. And we're being pruned back to be more fruitful, but we have a very important place in the mission of God, and he is not done with us yet. The gospel is on the move today, just like on the day of Pentecost. I was at a missions conference a couple years ago in Orlando, Florida, because, you know, somebody had to go. And uh, I, I heard a guy named Leith Anderson, and he said... He said that every day, every hour of every day, on average, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. Every hour of every day, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus, which is how many people gave their life to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, right? So Pentecost is happening every hour of every day, just not in one place. In 1980... 80% of Christians lived in either Europe or North America. But by the year 2000, only 37% of Christians lived in Europe or North America. And that's not just because Christianity has declined in the West, but it's exploded in the majority world. Now, in the United States, churches among middle-class white populations are in a slow decline. But in the United States, among people of color and among immigrants, the gospel is on the rise. It's only the white church that's in trouble. And if you want to keep a white church, you're in trouble. Globally, we are living in the golden age of the mission of God. Now, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Let me give you two reasons why all of this changed. Number one, Churches like this have sacrificially sent the gospel all over the world by sending missions, sending money, sending resources, sending people with special skills to do good in the name of Jesus, and then telling people why. Absolutely. And so don't stop it. But the second reason, and the more important reason, the more important reason is God's not in retirement. God is as active today as he's ever been. He is still in charge. He's still the Lord of the harvest. And everywhere you go, no matter how dark it may seem to you, God got, you, got there before you and is preparing things for you. God still calls us into his mission locally and globally. And so while the majority world has 70% of the world's Christians... They only have 17% of the church's money. Think about that. The majority world has 70% of the world's Christians. They have the workforce. 
They have 17% of the church's money. Guess who has the rest? Now, we have a lot more than money to share. Leadership training, education, medicine, engineering. There are a lot of things that we can contribute. But one of the reasons we need to stay engaged in missions is not just for what we can teach, it's for what we can learn. Because if you're not paying attention to what God is doing around the world, you don't understand what God is doing in your world. The American church needs to stay engaged in missions because we need to learn. And one of the reasons that I left preaching for churches in the United States to work in global missions was I was convinced that the American church had pretty well lost its way and we need to study what God was doing in other countries and bring it back here. We need to humble ourselves and realize North America is not the capital of the kingdom of God. God is not going to give his will to all nations to a group of white middle class guys in an office in Dallas, Texas. It's not going to happen. We need to go humble and we need to go learning. And if you're not connected with what God is doing globally, you are not connected to the research and development wing of the kingdom of God. If we want the church to grow here, we need to learn what God is doing there. Because I tell you, in the business world, if, if business was booming in other countries and it was bad here, they would go study it. We need to do the same thing. Now, if you ask what in the world is God doing right now, I'll give you three major trends that are reshaping the planet. Three major trends. Number one, urbanization. Uh, for most of human history, the vast majority of the human population have lived in the country on farms and have worked in either agriculture or in small towns that served agriculture. But the world has been moving to the cities very rapidly in the last couple centuries, and for the first time, in the history of the world, in 2005, over half of human beings lived in a city instead of in the country. But by 2050, 70% of the human population is going to live in a city. You may go, I don't like that. Well, nobody asked you. We don't get to choose these things. People are moving to the cities. Number two, immigration. Which, by the way, Church of Christ folks are predominantly rural in their mentality and are usually one or two generations away from the farm. We don't like urbanization by nature. We've got to get used to it. Number two, second change, immigration. You may have heard about this in politics. Immigration. More people live outside their home country than any time in history. People are on the move. Over 200 million people are on the move today from one country to another. Over half of the population of the country of Syria has had to flee their homes. Over 12 million Syrians displaced. 720 million people now live outside their home country. 43 million people who live inside the United States were not born in this country. And by the way, 74% of those people say that they believe Jesus is Lord. So the people you may want to keep out may be your brother or your sister. No, they don't. They represent the future of the church. So immigration is a huge, huge force that's happening in the world. Third, technology. Technology. This little phone that I've got right here, I can video conference my wife from almost any country on the planet. I constantly interact with people on continents all over the planet through technology. We have the ability now to communicate and cheap travel like never before. Now think about it. The people of the world are being collected in cities from nations all over the world, and we have the technology to communicate with all of them instantaneously. That's amazing. The one word that captures all three of those trends is the word globalization. And it's hitting Oklahoma too. Maybe not as fast as some states, but it's hitting Oklahoma too. 
So the foreign-born population in Oklahoma tripled from 1990 to 2013. Approximately 6% of the population of Oklahoma was born in another country in 2013. It's grown since then. There are about 30,000 Muslims living in Oklahoma, and that's expected to double in the next 20 years. Where I live in Dallas-Fort Worth, 400 people move to DFW every day, and 70% of them are foreign-born, and they are coming north up I-35. Now, that's disorienting. It, it is destabilizing in many, many ways. It brings problems, it brings challenges, and it creates a lot of fear. But let me ask you this question. Whether you like it or whether you don't like these things, I want you to wrestle with this question. Who's driving this? You think God woke up one day and looked down and went, Oh, when did that happen? I didn't see that coming. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? What if God is collecting all the people from all the nations of the world in the major cities of the world and giving us the technology to reach everybody within one generation? Maybe because we wouldn't get to the nations fast enough, God is bringing the nations to us. And if God is doing this, do you want to fight him? It may be a threat to our culture. It's not a threat to the kingdom of God. And as uncomfortable as this can be, and it's uncomfortable for me, globalization is not the enemy of the gospel. Global missions is now possible absolutely everywhere. Our number two child, our son, is a missionary in New York City. He lives in the Bronx. He's the only white guy for many, many, many blocks. They always assume he's Albanian. And the first thing people ask him when they meet him is, where are you from? And when he says Texas, they don't believe him because you're not supposed to be here. But they're making disciples of people from nations all over the world because 43% of people in New York City are not born in that country. They're somewhere roughly around that. And so they are planting churches and making disciples, and they have seen people who come to Jesus in New York City who have shared the faith by technology back in their home country and started churches in other countries from the gospel that they heard in the McDonald's in the Bronx. It's absolutely amazing the way that we can work globally without even having to leave our own zip code today. Um, we have an opportunity with international students in our area. We got to get over this myth of salt water. You don't have to cross an ocean to do mission. Mission is happening right here. And the greatest opportunity of our lifetime is the opening up of the Muslim world to Jesus. In the first 1,400 years of Islam, from 610 through the 20th century, Muslim, the Muslim world was essentially unreachable. But for the first time in 1,400 years, it's wide open. Because of terrorism, because of civil wars, because of global conflict, because of ISIS, because of Al-Qaeda, because of all the violence of the radicals, and the shaking up of the Muslim world, people are walking away from Muhammad and saying, we need a man of peace instead of a man of war. Now, what that means is, and this is stunning, more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the 1,400 years preceding it combined. It is stunning what God is doing in the Muslim world. They are flooding into Europe as refugees and four out of seven Muslim refugees who come into Europe report having had dreams and visions of Jesus on the way. And they are coming to Christ in huge numbers. In 2016, we sent one of our staff to a 
Muslim evangelism conference in an island in the Mediterranean. And he said a brother got up from Morocco to give his country report, and he began this way. I thank God for ISIS because they're making it possible for my people to learn about Jesus. We know believers in Jesus from the country of Iran who have told us, do not pray for the peace of Iran. It's the destabilization of Iran that's driving people to Jesus. Like, oh my goodness, that's tough. This massive migration of Muslim people into Europe, it's, it's, it's destabilizing to the countries and the cultures. I understand that. And yet, God is working in the middle of that to bring people to Jesus. And many of them want to take Jesus back to their home country as soon as they can get back. And yet to this day, 86% of Muslims in the world have never met a follower of Jesus. 86% of 1.8 billion people have never met a Christian. The country today in the world that has the fastest growing Christian population is the country of Iran. 12% annual growth rate. In 1979, when the Shah of Iran fell and the Ayatollah Khomeini came in, there were about 500 Christians in the nation of Iran. Today, maybe as many as 600,000, and you will be imprisoned if you get caught evangelizing. I've known people who have been imprisoned. I have known people who've had friends beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And yet, in spite of that, that's where Christianity is growing the fastest. Now, the organization I work for, MRN, we are recruiting and mobilizing churches and workers to take the gospel around the Mediterranean to the Muslim world. And I'm telling you, God is doing amazing things today, but you're not going to hear it on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or any of the broadcast news channels. What in the world is God doing? I'll tell you what God is doing. God is bringing people from every nation, race, tribe, and language together to form one new people in the new heaven and the new earth. That vision in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where all the nations of the world come and they all sing the praises of the glory of God in all the different languages of the world united, that's coming true. That vision from Revelation 21 and 22 where the kings of the earth bring the treasures of their nations into the new Jerusalem to put them on display before the king of glory, that's happening. God is doing that. And Paul said it would happen. In Ephesians 2, Verses 13 and 14, Paul said this, But now in Christ Jesus, you, meaning you other nations, you people who were not Jews, you people who were not the select race, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to meet my brother Abdul. I met Abdul in Athens. Abdul is from Afghanistan. He's a Dari speaker. Dari is very similar to Farsi, which is the language of Iran. Uh, the Dari people are ethnically Persian, um, and they are persecuted by the Pashtun people, who are the rural people who, uh, where the Taliban are strong in Afghanistan. And because they believe in such things as educating their daughters, they're, they're dangerous radicals, and they are despised by the Taliban. And so Abdul, uh, wanted a better life for his daughters in particular. They didn't want to be persecuted. Their people were being slaughtered. And so they walked, walked from Afghanistan through Iran all the way across the Middle East to Turkey. Now, you got to understand, when you are on a journey like that, you are incredibly vulnerable. Every night, 
when they would bed down for the night, they would have to tie a rope to their daughter's ankles and then tie one to their ankle so that no one would steal their daughters in the night and traffic them. Horrible stories along the way, and yet that was less scary than living in the country they came from. He came to Athens. He met Jesus. He was eager to hear about Jesus. Now, this guy was trained by the Soviets to work on aircraft during the war. And he's somebody that I would probably, if I was just thinking politically, would see as my enemy. But Abdul told me, he said, we used to be two, but now we're one. He said, my father was a Muslim, his father was a Muslim, his father was a Muslim, his father was a Muslim, going back a thousand years. And he said, our God was far away and unknowable. But he said, now he lives right here. We used to be enemies, but now we are brothers. Because the love of God is bigger than the conflict between countries and races. The love of Jesus heals the world. God wants us to pray for our enemies, and when we do, and they come to know him, we find out that our enemies can become our family. I want you to meet Sarah. It's not her given name. It's a name she took after she became a Christian. She's from Syria, a little town you may have heard of called Damascus. Happens to show up in the Bible. Sarah lived through the Civil War there. Her husband and two of her sons were killed in that war. She fled as a refugee with her two daughters and her mother-in-law, came to Greece. She came to Jesus, and when she did, she became a target of violence from the radicals that were in the camps, and so she began to sleep out on the streets. She was taken in by church uh, and given some temporary shelter by a ministry there. But her mother-in-law was not happy about her becoming a Christian, and so she kidnapped the two daughters and illegally slipped across a border into Europe with them, and Sarah was left with no one except her Christian family. And you would think that somebody like that would just be beyond consoling. But Sarah's a worship leader. She loves to sing praise songs in Arabic. She's always down at the church reaching out to people, ministering any way she can. We'd been with her for a couple of weeks, and my wife asked her, how do you do it? How do you have such joy in the midst of the story that you've been living? And Sarah said, I could lay in my bed every day and cry, and there are plenty of days that that's what I do, want to do when I wake up. But she said, I get up every day, and I put on my makeup, and I come down here, and I bless people in the name of Jesus because the joy of the Lord is my strength, and worship yeah. is my therapy. She's not my enemy. She's my sister. So how do we join what God is doing in the world? It's a challenging time. Challenging time. But it's a great time to be alive and love Jesus. What an amazing time to be alive and love Jesus. Can I give you five things real quick that I'm going to suggest you do to just join what God is doing in the world? Number one, don't give in to cynicism. Cut back the amount of time you spend watching the news and spend more time focusing on the good news. Take courage. God is winning. And God is going to be triumphant. Don't give in to cynicism. Don't give in to fear. Number two, don't let the politicians play on your fears and cause you to lose hope for God's world and lose love for God's world. Invest globally. For what you learn, 
as well as what you can contribute. Third, commit to pray globally. Pray globally. Now, one of the ways you can do that, you can go to a website we've created called medrim.org, M-E-D-R-I-M, medrim.org, and you'll get a monthly update about what God's doing in the medrim. But you've got a list in your bulletin of all of your missions points. Um, you're going to be hearing about those this month. Pray for those people. Every day, pray for those people. The kingdom of God advances on its knees. It's the only army in the world that advances on its knees. Pray globally because the power comes from God, and that power is activated when we connect with him in prayer. Fourth, ask if God is calling you to go. Some of you may be called to go. Maybe it's just go across the street. Maybe it's to go into a neighborhood that may be nearby you but just seems very foreign to you. Maybe it's just to go into a restaurant that serves a food that you have never tasted before and people meet that don't look like you. But maybe God's calling you to go to another country. Maybe God is calling you to do something that doesn't make sense in the world but makes a whole lot of sense in the kingdom of God. Ask God. What's my role? Are you calling me to go? Short-term, mid-term, long-term, are you calling me to go? And if God tells you to go, call me. I'll help you get there. And fifth, start here. Because immigration's happening in your neighborhood. I don't know who's within a few blocks of here. I don't know who's within the five zip codes surrounding you. But I guarantee you, you've got people from countries all over the world. And you can't go to those countries. But you can meet those people. You can lead them to Jesus. And they are going to connect because the average immigrant supports 15 people in their home country. And when they send money back, influence goes back and the gospel can go back too. A few years ago, my wife pulled out an old hard drive that had a whole bunch of pictures on it. And it wasn't working anymore. And she said, we need to, we need to get this fixed. I don't want to lose these pictures. So I'm like, all right. So there was a, across the freeway from where my office building is, there was a, there was a store that said computer on it. So I walked in there, and there was this Middle Eastern guy behind the desk, and I asked him about this drive. Can you get it working? He said, probably so. He said, come back in a few days, and, and I'll tell you. And so I came back in a few days, and he said, well, we got it working. He said, but it's going to take another day or so to get everything transferred onto another hard drive. And I and, uh, said, oh, that's great. That's great. So I said, by the way, um, I noticed your accent doesn't sound like you're from Texas. Uh, I really love your accent. Where are you from? He said, Afghanistan. I said, Afghanistan? Well, how long have you been here? He said, three months. I said, three months? How in the world did you get a visa to come to the United States from Afghanistan? We're in the middle of a war with you. He said, I was a translator for the U.S. Army. And at the end of a year, uh, they gave me a visa to come to the United States. I said, oh, that's, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for being willing to put your life at risk that way. Thank you for what you did. I said, I said, uh, do you have any family? Well, I have a wife. I said, is she here? No, they won't give her a visa. She's still waiting on a visa, by the way, and it's been about three or four years because they're worried about security concerns. And I said, well, um, as a Christian, I'm glad you're in our country. I just want to welcome you in the name of Jesus. I said, do, do people here, are they kind to you? Are they warm to you? She said, he said, no. I said, no. He said, no. I'm a Muslim. My name is Muhammad. People hate me here. I said, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he 
tells us we're supposed to welcome all people. I, I just want to be your friend. He said, oh, you're my first American friend. Awesome. And so I just started going to see him. And I'd take him out to eat, and he hates guacamole. It's not his thing. It's not his thing. <laughs> Now, I haven't yet convinced him to follow Jesus, and he hadn't convinced me to follow Muhammad, but we are friends, and we have good conversations, and he is open to something he would never have been open to. Our daughter goes to a nice high school in a middle-class neighborhood in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Two of her best friends are Muslims, Miriam and Allah. Miriam's from Iraq, Allah is from Sudan. Uh, they talk about faith all of the time. Uh, Miriam has come to church with her. They have deep spiritual conversations, and she's just so glad to have somebody she can talk to about God in the world. This is not that hard. We can do this. It starts here. Well, despite how disorienting the news is these days and how much fear we sometimes feel, I'm telling you, it's a great time to be alive and love Jesus. God is redeeming people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's just asking us to do what he's doing. God's just saying, stop being afraid. Come on out here with me. Trust that I know what I'm doing and join my mission to redeem the world. Now, God may have moved on your heart this morning. God may have something he needs you to attend to. You may need prayers. You may want to respond in some way. And so we're, we have a tradition that we welcome people to come forward and pray and seek help or support with whatever uh, is going on with them, whatever they need in their spiritual journey. And so we're going to make you that offer to come down and let the leaders here know about that and pray with you while we stand and sing this next song. <laughs>